0: thrash it out is brought to you by you out there because we are 100 funded by listeners in order to make a completely independent and unbiased show no advertisers no sponsors no network and with your support we can keep it real so go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to make your pledge and support the show This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston.
1: And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we're discussing Twisted Sister's 1984 classic, Stay Hungry. Mm, indeed. An
0: album that I had never heard before. Uh, that makes
1: me very excited.
0: Right. Well, and I'm sure probably surprises a lot of people as well. Or maybe not regular listeners, but, you know, <laughs> any new listeners.
1: Well, you know what? It's funny surprise. because on the Facebook group there was a bunch of people that... It seemed, and I hope this is a good chunk of our audience, who only knew Twisted Sister because of the two videos that were on MTV Mm -hmm. and had a very... uh, That was the picture they had in their head of who this band was and what was the music that they played and all that kind of stuff. And so my hope is that there were people who went into this album really just knowing them for those two songs. And they're from this album, aren't they? Absolutely. They're both from this album. They're two most famous songs. So um, I'm interested to see what people think... Once they got a bigger picture of Twisted Sister.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, some quick follow-up from uh, last episode and things that have happened. So first of all, uh, welcome to, we have a couple of new patrons since we last recorded, and they are Luke Dennis and Greg Anderson, who I think, because he's also popped up on the Facebook page, is the Greg Anderson I know uh, from the old uh, goth rock scene, actually, in the UK. Uh, back when we all used to go to Whitby and, uh, you know, UK people, Gothic was a thing and what have you. Uh, so hello, Greg. Uh, long time no see. Um, so thank you very much to both those guys for uh, becoming patrons. And, you know, once again, remember, if you want to help support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to make your pledge. We only ask minimum pledge is $1 per episode. You can give more if you want, but that's all we ask. Um, and every uh, contribution is greatly uh, appreciated.
1: Absolutely. And and the community continues to grow. There's over a hundred people in the Facebook group now. Like, And I, I think there are some people from my high school days that have now started to right. uh, check out the <laughs> podcast as well. So it's interesting how, you know, I, I think there's people who we grew up with that are always hungry to talk about music that are sort of coming around and, and finding the show. And that's awesome. It is. It is. Um,
0: I also wanted to quickly follow up. Uh, there's a bit of news that I think everybody's probably expecting us to comment on. We'll talk about that in a bit. But I quickly wanted to follow up and say, um, after you recommended it, um, and a couple of other people on the Facebook group recommended it, actually, I finally watched the Metal Evolution series Oh, recently. Uh, very much enjoyed it, especially the bonus episode about the extreme metal Uh Uh, Because that was basically, I was like, hmm, 90% of this is the stuff that I listen to. I didn't really regard myself as an extreme metal fan, but maybe I am. Um, So that was all, you know, I enjoyed it. It wasn't perfect, but, you know, considering the breadth of stuff that the guy was trying to cover uh, in, you know, a relatively short space of time, I thought, you know, it was very good, did a very good job. But one of the things I want to mention, what really incensed me on the grunge episode... Spencer Proffer, a producer, the guy who produced Quiet Riot's album Metal Health, which is generally regarded and was even mentioned in that series as one of the first, you know, proper heavy metal albums. Um, Basically saying that, like, no, grunge isn't metal, because grunge is synonymous with great songwriting. Whereas metal is just a lot of noise, and grunge is more intelligent than metal. I was like, I was screaming at the fucking TV. I was like, fuck you, man.
1: Isn't that funny too when you see, maybe not funny is the right word for it, but it's amazing how you can look at different genres of music and different periods of music from a completely opposite perspective as someone else like that, because like for me, my my knee-jerk reaction when you talk about those two types of music is the exact opposite. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what I mean? But like, as you said, to hear someone who was so involved in that scene and you bring up mental Health, uh, that record, I believe, came out right before Stay Hungry. And that was a record that Twisted Sister had set their sights on in terms of wanting to beat it.
0: Right, right. Um, so
1: that's how, what a huge record it was at the time. It was a huge record, and and just as much as Twisted Sister was known for their uh, videos, Quiet Riot was as well. Their their videos, "Bang Your Head" and uh, "Come On Feel the Noise," were two videos that defined the early MTV era. Yeah, and yeah. were right alongside Twisted Sisters. We're not going to take it, and I want to rock. And so they were huge at that point, and that record is. Just huge,
0: yeah. It's it's ridiculous. I've just realized what I was saying. I didn't mean one of the first heavy metal. I mean one of the first uh, heavy metal albums of that era of the sort of glam, uh, you know, precursor to hair bands. But you know what we think of as like eighties metal and eighties rock. Quiet Riot kind of ushered that whole scene in.
1: Um, I believe they were the first one to go number one on the charts. Oh, really? Uh, and so I, I think they are that important to wow. that period of time. I, I'd have to. Uh, I don't think it's beyond. A doubt that at some point we might do a quiet riot episode, uh that that, that was would be a band and, and maybe even an album that I would bring up. Right. But uh but yeah, they were they were huge at that point in time and they also were one of the bands like Twisted Sister that understood what videos were gonna do for bands' right. careers.
0: I think what pissed me off as much as anything about that was that and I've spoke about this Briefly before on previous episodes, there is an attitude, especially in this country, there is an attitude that sort of indie rock is... Uh, you know, the same thing is like, oh well, th- those are great songs, and it's you know smarter, and you know talks about real life, not dragons and you know barbarians and stuff like heavy metal, and it's just like, oh, fuck off, you know, you don't know anything about what you're talking about, do you? As soon as somebody trots out that line, I'm just like, well, you clearly have no idea what you're talking about, and I just switch off. I'm like, no.
1: <laughs> right, I think it. I think it's indicative of someone who never looked any further than their knee jerk reaction to a particular movement or, or, you know, period of music, because again, I think for a lot of metal fans who are my age here in the States, who grew up with these bands that I like to bring up on the show, grunge was the devil because it basically came in and killed everything that we loved and, and grew up listening to. And so for, for, it was like, it
0: it was like how punk grunge killed eighties metal in the same way that punk
1: killed progressive rock right and you could just leave it at that so for fans of you know for people like me who grew up with that era of music like you could have just stopped at well grunge killed the thing that i love so i hate grunge right and and you could never go any further than that and there are a lot of metal fans who who stopped there um but i think you know obviously when you dismiss an entire genre of music um then you're you're missing out on a lot of amazing well music, uh, yeah, yeah
0: any genre i mean i am by no means the world's biggest country music fan for example but i enjoy a bit of johnny cash now and again you know
1: i'm a huge abba fan i mean who isn't right oh so, i'm uh,
0: the biggest abba fan you'll find
1: dude exactly so but I also went to like diehard Mama- metalhead
0: i went to see mamma mia the last time i was in london i mean you know <laughs> yep and I was on my feet dancing and singing along with everybody else. Oh, absolutely. Um all right, but uh the bit of news that uh, we are I think people are expecting us to talk about is um there was an article that you linked to I think on the Facebook group uh about the breakup of Sister Sin. Yes, uh with interviews with all the band members and it was really interesting.
1: It was interesting and sad and uh I think not that different from a lot of stories that maybe don't get told, um, but really, really interesting because we. It's funny, and there were people who were commenting on that link, basically saying like, "Holy crap! I thought they were still together." Right? I just found this band. Yeah, you know, I just discovered this band, and, and that's how I felt the same way. Like when they broke up, it was after I had just seen them on a huge summer tour, the Mayhem Festival, and they looked like they were poised to take over the world. Yep. You know, they. One was worked. just after we covered them on the show. Absolutely. And they were making fans at that show because they were playing the second stage and a lot of people had never heard of them. And by the end of their five or six song set, people were like, holy crap, these, these, this man is amazing. And I was like, yes, people are recognizing like it's finally going to happen. They're going to be huge. And boom, they're gone. Yeah. Just like that. And so, and we didn't know why, right? They just sort of announced on their Facebook page that that was the end of it. And they kind of hinted that. Not not everybody in the band wanted to continue on at that point. But now with this interview, you sort of got everybody in the band's perspective. And, you know, it's amazing how quickly that stuff ends for bands. And then these people are talking about, yep, I got a regular job now and I'm just going about my business. And I, you know, I I miss certain aspects of it, but I like having a consistent paycheck. And it it sort of drives home that idea of how difficult it is to be successful which i think is very relevant to the whole twisted sister story so yeah that was a fascinating read but still heartbreaking that that band is no longer around it was it was
0: especially heartbreaking uh to sort of to hear how clearly bitter Liv jagrell is uh, about the whole thing you know she clearly was blindsided by by the whole thing and you know he's determined to sort of not give up i think what really got me as well and i found kind of quite sad uh, was, and somebody else commented on this as well, I don't recall where, but just seeing how happy most of them were to, like, have regular jobs and the concept of being able to support their family and, yeah, you know, have a consistent paycheck. It's yep. like, you realise, oh my God, you know, these guys, a lot of these bands out there, they really are on the breadline. They really are living hand-to-mouth every day especially these days where the only revenue you're gonna get is from gigs it's like we've made it, it's the point we've made a couple of times before about bands doing sort of having sponsors and doing merchandising and stuff these days they have to because they ain't making money from the records you know no and that's why a lot of them millions have, off of spotify you know
1: yeah and that's why a lot of them have stopped even making records and they're doing either eps or just releasing a single every right. few months and yep. just trying to stay in people's you know, trying to uh, capture a piece of the mindshare and keep themselves relevant so they can keep touring and keep making money because yeah, the whole scene has changed. But even back then, as we talked about, you know, and we'll talk about with Twisted Sister, like just getting to a point where you can sustain yourself for many of these bands is, is a many, many years long journey and it goes away in one second. And so even the bands that achieve a level of success, that success may be so brief right tales in, in comparison like, yeah. to the amount of years that they put in to try to get there
0: yeah it's uh like i say it was kind of heartbreaking really uh to read those you know how yeah everybody was like oh my god i didn't realize life could be like this i didn't realize i could have a
1: regular job and get regular money <laughs> right and then how hard is it for and you saw when they asked about you know well what about a reunion you see that the allure of just having a stable paycheck is almost enough for people to say, you know what? I'm never going back. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was uh
0: yeah, I mean, there were a couple of guys in the band who were like I don't see myself ever going back to that lifestyle right. and you like what a tragedy.
1: Yeah, because the music they were making like was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it was they good, they, man. They, yeah. they were sort of bringing back that that era of metal in, in a way that made it fresh and, you know, I I sort of saw them as almost like the poster children for a particular movement and I got really excited about what they were sort of bringing to the table and and so I haven't found another band that I enjoy that much that sort of really captured the music that I grew up with and and we're going to carry the flag forward you know
0: yeah yeah as i say really uh, you know a sort of an eye opening set of interviews a very eye opening article for sure um right okay before we move on to the band. then let's just quickly remind people we uh we've mentioned it already we have a facebook group uh, which is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out uh the patreon of course is at patreon.com slash thrash it out and uh the website is thrash it out uh, and if you want to get in touch with us the best way is either through the facebook group or you can email or tweet at us and the links for those are at the website thrash it out
1: Yep, and I just wanted to read a couple of quick things from the Facebook page about the Mastodon episode, which was the last episode that we did. Uh, Lenny Reed, that was his album that he picked. And so his feedback was, Love the episode, guys. Thank you. Very pleased that Brian liked it. A little bit gutted that Anthony didn't so much. (laughs) Uh, Ultimately led to the best dynamic of what I love about the podcast, which is the discussion and the actual thrashing it out part. He said, uh, The visual vibe that Anthony felt for Pendulous Skin... And the scene from the concept idea is how I feel from start to finish. Perhaps the hint of the loose concept allows me to hook my own narrative to it, which I suppose is a different way to do a concept album. Um, Because we talked about how the whole thing is about, you know, this guy climbing a mountain, that kind of stuff. He said, uh, the main influences of Mastodon are King Crimson and the Melvins, which will account for a lot of the jazz and time spent and time signature changes. He said, Birchman wasn't the first or the only single uh, even weirder capillarian crest was the first single to the album
0: right right yeah that was i mean you know we were going off of wikipedia uh which right. is never wrong but clearly in this case is <laughs> wrong
1: <laughs> and um, there was a ton of feedback back and forth about this album i th- would say there was
0: actually yeah there was a lot of feedback about this episode uh
1: and it ranged from i'll just pick a couple that were sort of indicative um This album, so Daniel Loaf said, uh, this album was hard to listen to. Also, this is the first time I own an album that you guys review. uh, Money Saved for Once. Uh, Dave Richardson said, I can't believe Anthony doesn't like that jazzy instrumental part uh, on the track three or four. It's funny because everything you hate is what I like about this album. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Trevor Walker said, I love, I saw Mastodon about eight years ago at the Big Day Out. They played at 2 p.m., which I thought was weird. But the rumor going around was that they couldn't be trusted to keep their drinking in check for a later slot. And then there was a conversation between right. uh, David and Lenny about you know the band members getting in fights and and conflicts between bands and things like that. So it seems like those guys had quite a reputation. That for,
0: um, book that I mentioned a few episodes ago, the the oral history of heavy metal, louder than hell. Uh, there is you know when they sort of get to the era where Mastodon were you know coming up as it were. Uh, they The members of Mastodon reappear quite frequently in tales of drunken bar brawls and the like, so yes.
1: Uh, And let's see what else we had. Uh, A lot of people suggested that some of their other albums, if people didn't like this one so much, they might enjoy them. Uh, David Lawrence said, I feel like Crack the Sky is a far better album, more ambitious, a bit more proggy, with really great long songs. But I understand that this was the pick for this album he said still check out sky and see what mastodon was like at the height of their power and weirdness
0: yeah the one thing i did give as i mentioned on the episode i gave crack the Sky a listen uh to see if it would be you know kind of more up my alley um and i found it on first blush anyway it basically felt musically a bit like blood mountain part two You know, it it felt very much of the same kind of era of that band's sound. So if you did like Blood Mountain, you almost certainly will like Crack the Sky. And maybe if I'd listened to it more, you know, maybe I would have liked it more or spotted more differences or whatever. But it really, if you put them on back to back, at first blush, to me, they sounded, they could have sounded like a single, like double album or something, you know? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then the last one I'll read is uh, Dijon Halazan said, "Great episode. I really enjoy this album. It's heavy and loud. I can hear that they're having fun playing. They don't bore me with their technical proficiency. And when they do lose me a bit, they quickly remind me that they can rock. It is hard to listen carefully in its entireness in one go. And I definitely found that like this this is an album that I felt like um, rewards multiple listens as you know we've talked about a lot on the show so uh, the first time through you're definitely not going to grab everything from this album for sure Oh god no Uh, i know it uh, was uh,
0: lots of people had lots of people had opinions
1: (laughs) about which is like a perfect pick right because that, that is a perfect album that sort of splits people down the middle and I love that. And so there was great discussion in the Facebook group and that post is still up. People should go there if they haven't and, uh, and throw their thoughts down.
0: Yeah, definitely. The, um, the post is still there somewhere. Yeah. You know, just scroll down the page. Um, so, uh, let's hope we get a fair bit of feedback about this as well then, because, uh, back to our choices and this was your choice because you are a self-professed lifelong sisters. Uh, I was going to say sister sin twisted sister fan.
1: <laughs> well, just on that twi- on that Sister Sin note, if you watch some of their videos, you'll see that I believe it's the bass player who has a Twisted Sister patch on his jean right. jacket. Uh, so they're definitely a, a big influence there. But uh, yeah, you know, we talked about everybody's metal origins at one point on the Facebook page. And I think that I had forgotten what a huge part Twisted Sister played in my sort of metal origin because I had a cousin who was three years older than me. And the two bands that he was into that I got sort of pulled in because I spent a lot of time with him and his group of friends were Def Leppard and specifically the Pyromania album. And we talked about Def Leppard a mm-hmm. while ago uh, and Twisted Sister. Those right. were the two bands. And And Twisted Sister was a band that by the time I was old enough to go see them, they were done. So I never oh, got to really? see them live. I knew them through MTV and I knew them through my cousin, but I would say of my, you know, and I was nine going on 10 when this album came out, uh, this album and that pyromania album are two of my most listened to albums ever, even to this day. So it was so funny listening to this again. Uh, and I probably listened to it 30 to 50 times in between the time that we recorded the last episode, I've been listening to it nonstop and it brought me right back. I I really do love this band and, uh, you could argue whether or not this is their best album, but I love this album.
0: Right. Actually, we should uh, mention that as well. When we said that this was the album of theirs, we were going to talk about a couple of people have commented in Facebook saying like, really, really, shouldn't it be this album or that album? Um, Which, you know, and everybody, you know, as we've said many times, one of the points of this show is to demonstrate that everybody is entitled to their opinion and we can all be friends despite disagreeing about heavy metal. But, One of the things that we've always done on this show, and you literally go right back to the first episode, and we we said this: we look for the most what we think will be the most interesting album to talk about by a band. Not necessarily their best, not necessarily their most commercial, not necessarily their best selling, but generally either our favorite or the one that we think will just you know be the most interesting to discuss. And that's why we did Santanga for Metallica because. You know, whether you like it or not, from a sheer discussion level, that is the most interesting album that Metallica ever made. Um, And so, yeah, you picked this one because you, well, was it your favorite or did you just think that, you know, it would be the most interesting for me to listen to?
1: Well, it was my introduction to them. And so, you know, over the years I have gone back and the albums that other people have brought up is the two previous ones, which are Under the Blade and You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, uh, which feature some of my favorite Twisted Sister songs, um, but I think this is the most fascinating album, and it's because of a few reasons. Number one, the songs that people who only know them in a passing fashion are from this album. Right. Uh, number two, this album sold almost 4 million copies, so it was multi-platinum. Uh, number three, I think it represents Twisted Sister at a time where they were at their absolute most popular, and also right about to fall off the face of the earth. And so it is a fascinating album in that it is sort of them on the knife's edge. And I think you can hear that in the music. I think that you can see that in the lyrics, and we'll talk about that as we go on. Mm -hmm. But this was a band who had fought for almost 10 years at this point to get to the level of success that they had, and they would lose it in less than three years. And so right. well
0: this was technically their last album, wasn't it? Um, I, I didn't I deliberately didn't read up too much about them because I wanted to hear it from you, but I saw that the only album they put out after this was actually effectively a, a D. Snyder solo album. Well they had one in between, so they did Oh, there was uh, one more,
1: right. Yep. So they went uh 82 was Under the Blade, 83 was You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, 84 was this album, 85 was an album called Come Out and Play. Uh, and those of you who oh, yes, yes. know them in a passing fashion may know them for the Alice Cooper Be Cruel to Your School video that uh, MTV wouldn't play because it was a zombie video and they thought it was too violent at the time. But uh, that album came out and then the, the album that you're referring to is Love is for Suckers, which was supposed to be a Dee solo album. And they made it into a Twisted Sister album and that effectively killed the band. Right. Um, because uh, it, and it's funny. It, there's a there's the single off of that album called uh, I think it's called Hot Love or something like that. But it's it's brutal. Um, <laughs> well, it's catchy and- like many songs of Twisted Sister, but it's so far away from the heavier aspects of the band, and it just uh, they just fell off the face of the earth after right. that.
0: Well, and the reason that they the reason that Dee Snider went off and did a solo album was because that album uh, come out and play sold so poorly in comparison to this one
1: which is unfortunate i remember reading that now yeah what killed that album was the cover tune that they did which was leader of the pack um which was i can't remember the name of the female group that did that but it was an oldie and they decided to do that on come out and play and they released that as the single and did a video for that and so you have this very sort of anti-Twisted Sister image-type video that leads the way for this album, when if you listen to Come Out and Play, the very first song, Come Out and Play, is a burner. Right. And it's very much in the vein of the stuff that you would like the best out of Twisted Sister. And so the fact that they made that choice, and I'm sure Dee Snyder was, was probably uh, very influential in making that choice, was the absolute wrong choice for that album. And it basically made the album Dead in the Water. Right. Um, and so he... You know, at that time, he talks about in the behind the music episode about like they were desperate to find anything to get people back into the fold, and they just put their eggs in the wrong basket.
0: Yeah, it was the Shangri La's, by the way. I'm 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 almost shocked that you didn't know that, (laughs) or that you'd forgotten. Anyway, Um,
1: I I just watched the behind the music last night, and uh, (laughs) and it's a nice epilogue to the amazing documentary that is on netflix now at least in the states and it's called we are twisted fucking sister that is one of the greatest music documentaries that i've ever seen because what it is is it is a chronicling of from when jj french started that band before any of the other members were in it all the way through them getting the atlantic record deal which is what um you can't stop rock and roll and then their big one stay hungry came out on and that sort of 10-year period of time where they owned the New York Long Island like that that th- this particular area of the club scene they were the kings of the world and it showed you how hard they worked it showed you what their mentality was as a band and I think if you see that documentary you will completely understand the core of Twisted Sister and have a different appreciation for all of their music because it's coming from a very specific place. And we'll talk about that through some of the songs here. But what a documentary. It's it's amazing how good that documentary is.
0: I, I do intend to watch that, yeah. Uh, I haven't watched it yet, but I, I do intend to because, yeah, you speak so loud of it. Well, and also, you know, we know that Dee is a very articulate man because, of, of course, that PMRC Hearing speech that he gave, which we've uh, linked to before in the show. So,
1: uh, which basically but- ruined his image, uh, which I oh, really? had forgotten until I rewatched the behind the music. But yeah, what happened was Stay Hungry comes out in 84. He goes to the Senate hearings in 85. At those Senate hearings, he talks about how he is a father, he is a husband, he is a teetotaler, he doesn't drink. Uh, by the way, neither did uh, JJ French. And I don't believe that Mark Mendoza was a partier at all either i might be wrong about him but for jj french and and d snyder they were not uh party animals when they were in twisted sisters so that was very different than most of the bands of that day mm. but he basically went up in as part of the senate hearing and said i'm just an average guy now for a guy who leads a band where the entire shtick of the band is to shock you
0: right to be extreme for him,
1: exactly for him to go up and basically say i'm nobody special i'm just a regular average guy And uh, I'm not this horrible monster that, you know, you make all rock bands out to be and all this kind of stuff. It really did deal a serious blow to the image where then people couldn't come back to the image that he had before. Um, So it's very interesting how that sort of – and they talked about that in the behind the music and I had kind of forgotten that because in my mind – at the time, and even still to this day, he was a hero for that. Right. Well, he was a con-
0: guy who came in and just blew them away. Compare and contrast as well to like these days, and we saw this actually in that Metal Evolution series, and I've seen it in. He seems to be Mister Renter quote like no no program is too small for him to give an opinion on. Uh, Alice Cooper.
1: He's like the Charles Barkley of, uh, (laughs) of, you know, rock documentaries. If
0: you have anything about any kind of rock music, he's there. He's there. He will be interviewed. He will appear on camera. But importantly, he will appear on camera without makeup. Sure, he's wearing his leather jacket and stuff. But, you know, he appears without makeup, just talking as himself. And he's quite happy to say, of course, it's all an act. You know, we stage manage the whole thing. We're entertainers. I'm just a regular guy who plays golf. As everybody knows, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that doesn't do his reputation any harm at all. And I wonder if that's partly because it's him, or because of, you know, the times, because we live in a much more in an age where people are much more aware that this is all an act and it's all entertainment.
1: Yes. I, I there's a I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. And I and I think that, you know, the story of Twisted Sister is basically that uh JJ French started this band he was the guy who was the driving force behind this band when he eventually brought in d snyder d snyder slowly took over the band and then became the face of the band and then destroyed the band and that's kind of the timeline of twisted sister because on this album and moving forward he had taken over all of the songwriting whereas back in the day jj french and the other members of the band were much more involved in songwriting he came in And basically just took everything over. And in that documentary on Netflix, you see sort of where that happened as he originally came to the band members and said, I don't like the songs that we're playing. I don't think they're good. I, you know, I don't really, I think we should be doing something better, something heavier. And they basically said to him, well, do you write songs? Where are they? And he didn't have any songs. And they said, well, get the hell out of here until you have some songs that you can throw at us. And so that sort of set him on this mission of, and he says it in the documentary, I wanted to destroy J.J. French because he was the guy in the band and, you know, I needed to prove myself. And so right. he then went on this songwriting tear and basically took over that band. And as you see in the videos and things like that, he became such the face of the band that the other guys sort of faded into the background. And his, by the time Stay Hungry became super successful, he was like a megalomaniac at that point. And so his ego essentially Destroyed the band, and because the other guys had sort of let him become this face of the band, they went down with him. And it's interesting to hear JJ French talk about that in the documentary because JJ French has a very sort of pragmatic approach to the band, which was if I had to deal with other people's baggage in order for this band to be successful, I was fine with that. I would do whatever it took to get us successful. And if that meant bringing in someone who could sing better than me, great. If that meant you know, dealing with people's egos, then that's what I would do as long as we continue to succeed.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't sort of, you know, read an awful lot of interviews with him, but I definitely, he's clearly, well, he's from the New York, like Kiss as well. He's from that sort of New York school of actually, no, hang on a Kiss from, no Kiss from Detroit, aren't they? Um, (laughs) But he's, he's from that school of it's, it's a business. It's all about success and making money and entertainment, and it doesn't matter if we don't get along. It doesn't matter if we don't have credibility. What's important is that, you know, we pull in big crowds and make lots of money.
1: And, and his whole thing is that he was a drugged-out hippie and got into music to get off of drugs. Oh, really? <laughs> which is the opposite of everybody else, right? So he and they and Twisted Sister initially was extremely influenced by uh, the New York Dolls, Mott the Hoople, David Bowie. Uh, and so that's where they originally got their glitter glam look from was a lot of those bands. And then they started to play heavier music as time went on. But his if that documentary features a lot of the early incarnations of the band and how J.J. French just sort of tried to continue to get better and add different pieces and get to a point where they could be super successful, and, you know, the missing ingredients were definitely Dee Snyder as the singer, because he is a weapon. You know, he brings something to the table that... Oh, what a fantastic other, uh, voice, yeah. Many yeah. other singers do not bring, and the energy that he brings, and then when you look at uh, them getting Mark the Animal Mendoza on bass as of 1978, and then when A.J. Perrow came along in 1982, which is really right before, you know, the record started dropping, that rhythm section... And we can talk about it when we get yeah, into the yeah, songs. Yeah, to like, them. holy shit, those guys were amazing. And so you could just see the documentary sort of shows the building of this band to the point where they owned the club scene in that area of the country. They were playing the biggest rooms. And what I love about Twisted Sister, and I'm going to read you this quote because I pulled a ton of interview quotes, but I'll just pick you know, some decent ones, but from that documentary, this is all you need to know about Twisted Sister. And um, let me find the uh the JJ French thing. Um but he talks about their mentality as a band. Uh and so D so first D says, Twisted Sister was designed to overwhelm an audience. Glam afforded us the makeup and the costumes and then we added staging. He said if there was anything that we could do to throw more weight in our direction, we did it. When other bands were going up against us, if you're bringing a bat to the fight and the other guy is bringing a gun, a bat, and a knife, you're going to lose. And he said whatever they could do, we would just figure out how to outdo that. And then JJ said, I don't know how much of a musical band we are as much as we are a predatory band. He said, you put this fish in the water. And you give that fish a target. And this fish will go out there and kill that other fish. He said, I don't care how insensitive that sounds, how infantile that sounds. That's the way of this band. He said, in the bars, it was kill or be killed. And I think that is the mentality of that club scene and the music scene at that time, is it was all about playing the clubs. And that scene was brutal. He said, he said... Winning over the audience. Uh, Not only that, but dethroning bands that were bigger than you because what they used to do and you see in that documentary is that bands would get the gig for the whole summer they would be the featured band of this particular room Ah, or bar and so they would come in and they would and so eventually you would get in the circuit and you would either be playing the biggest rooms or you would be opening for the people that played the biggest rooms and that kind of stuff he said uh tell us a band is better than us we're going to go out there we're going to swim out there and we're going to eat them he said, D may have gotten up every morning with a desire to blow me away or make me eat shit. He said, I got up every morning thinking about how I was going to make more money and blow this band or that band away. And so, and they had this particular band called Zebra, which was sort of a prog rock band out of New Orleans. And they go on to tell about how like these guys came in and Twisted Sister just destroyed them because they were so over the top and they, were, they brought so much more energy and everything. And that was their mentality. And if you... If you hear that and then you listen to any of their songs or any of their lyrics, it immediately makes sense for you. Most of these songs were written during that period of time, even, you know, in the early eighties, the songs for stay hungry were written before the band became successful. And they're all about destroying your enemy and uh, taking out these other bands or the struggle to get where you need to be. And and what's fascinating about this album to go back to, you know, you talking about what a, what a good point of discussion it is, is that on this album, you have two things. You have a band trying to convince itself to stay hungry and to keep fighting for the success that they have. And you also have songs on that album that are saying we're losing it. And that's, what's fascinating to me.
0: Hmm. Yeah. um, It was, I I saw, and this wasn't anything really to do with, uh, with us preparing for this show. Uh, But just the other day, I saw uh, a link with, I think, with J.J. French in an interview in Goldmine, uh, where he basically called other 80s bands idiots if they play new songs at concerts. Uh, And he's really quite, you know, sort of really quite scathing about it. He's like, these guys are morons. Nobody cares. Don't do it. You know, it's, it's pointless. It's a waste of energy. Nobody is coming to your gigs to hear new songs. They want to hear the classics. They want to hear those classics played the same way as they were on records. Don't think that you're special. Just don't do it, you know?
1: No, (laughs) and he has a very realistic and also also, like subdued attitude about it. Like it is what it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, pragmatic is, it really is the word. I mean, I'm kind of in two minds about it. I understand what he's saying totally. But at the same time, if I was, well, and maybe it's different for somebody like Twisted Sister because they did stop making records for so long. But if, you know a band i don't know take somebody like paradise lost who had you know some brief commercial success and those are the songs that most people associate with them but have still continued making records ever since and if i went to a gig and all i heard was the stuff from 15 20 years ago and none of the new material i'd actually be kind of pissed off (laughs) but you know maybe i'm not a typical fan in that sense i don't know and maybe twisted sisters fans aren't that way because they haven't put out new records for so long
1: And they also came up during a very interesting time. And and again, another thing that comes up during that documentary is that someone was saying, you know, in the 70s, there was two things that you would do when you went out for entertainment. You would either go to the movies or you would go see live music. And at that point in time, when you went to a club to see live music, no one wanted to hear anything new or original from any of the bands. They only wanted to hear cover songs. Ah, And so the bands that were the most well-regarded were the ones that could play your ACDC, your, your rock songs of the day and nail it. And so in order to even play new music, you had to get to a point where you had gotten such a following or your music was so good that it would, that you would bring the audience over to your original stuff. Because really at that time people just wanted to hear you play other people's songs. And so, you know, again, that, that was how they started. And so you could see as they went along, like J.J. was kind of, I think, very good at saying, like, I know what the audience wants and I know what's going to get a rise out of people. And the whole time, you know, as they're building their their sort of glam vibe and the costumes and everything else, like all of that stuff was because they needed to be more audacious than any other band that was out there and they needed to make a bigger impression. And it worked. And and the thing was, is at the time, Twisted Sister in the late 70s and, and even, you know, the beginning of the 80s were the most popular band in this part of the country. Everyone knew who they were, except when you traveled up to New York proper, to New York City, it was a completely different music scene there. And so they were never part of that. And they could never get a record deal in the clubs that they were playing. And so the first record deal that they got was from Secret Records over in the UK. Which is crazy. And, which is absolutely crazy. But they they had to sort of garner a following in the UK, and even when they were signed by Atlantic, they were signed by the UK branch of Atlantic. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in that documentary about how the the Atlantic Records in the states. There was like one producer that was trying to get them to sign Twisted Sister, and he almost lost his job because the the guy running the place said, "Don't even ever bring their name up to me anymore. They're a club band. They're a joke. Um, we're never going to sign them." Stop talking to me about Twisted Sister, and then lo and behold, someone from the UK side of Twisted Sister, or, or uh, of Atlantic Records, is the one that signs Twisted Sister, and the US branch was pissed off about it because that was a band that they had basically blacklisted. Right, and so it's just sort of uh, the other thing that 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 um, documentary really shows is how big of an influence that Lemmy was in getting people to accept them when they were over in the UK, um, and I have a quote here where he asks about. Lemmy. Uh, So someone talks about the film, the documentary, and they say, until the film, I hadn't realized just how important Lemmy was to the Twisted Sister story. He really went out of his way to champion you at the Wrexham Festival in Wales. And then again, when you appeared on the UK music show, The Tube. Now, when they appeared on that UK music show, The Tube, Lemmy came up on stage in the beginning of that show. And he also sort of introduced them at this Wrexham festival and basically told the crowd, give these guys a chance. And so Lemmy sort of came in at these uh, different things. And, and I think it was D who said, you know, and at the Reading festival and the marquee club, he said, it's, it's unexplainable. It's 1982. We get the secret records deal and we go over to England and that's where we meet Lemmy at the Wrexham festival festival. The secret records album comes out. We lose our deal because secret records went under Uh, He says, we go to the Tube and Lemmy's there. And we go to the Marquee Club the next night and Lemmy's there. And so Lemmy was sort of just showing up and (laughs) lending credibility to this band. But what they talk about in the documentary, like when they did that show, The Tube, that was literally a last ditch effort for them. They had already lost the record deal. And that's the show that they got signed off of. Right, um, right. To the Atlantic deal. And so that what's just fascinating about that documentary is it really just covers up until the point that they get the Atlantic records deal. And they had an entire career for almost a decade. Uh And it was a decade for JJ French before they got that. So when they, by the time they got a solid record deal, they were a seasoned, a veteran band, just veteran band at that point who, and that's why their songs are all, you know, these three minute, Punches because it—that's what—that's the life that they live. Like right, they grew in a club, in that you can't yes. do more than that. Yeah, and so it's just fascinating, like that—that, that, like how that forged them into the band that became so popular. Uh, the Tube,
0: incidentally, people have heard me uh, mention before. Jules Holland, in fact, on the Mastodon episode, mentioned the Jules Holland show uh, over here, which is like the last remaining live music show on. Uh, regular british tv and he was the uh first presenter of the tube many many years ago that's where most people knew him from before he got his own show um he uh the the tube was back in the days when we used to have a lot of music shows on british tv and you know uh, quite a few comparatively alternative music shows as well on the sort of more minor channels uh and channel four Part public owned, it's complicated, uh, launched in the 80s, but the tube was their alternative music show. And it was a big deal. You know, it was a genuine uh, people, bands could get launched off of a good performance on the tube. Uh, So I didn't see that particular performance, but it doesn't surprise me that they could get a deal if they, you know, off the back of that, if they put in a good performance, because that show was a big deal.
1: And the thing was, is that performance didn't start off well because people were not reacting well to the look of Twisted Sister. Oh, like
0: over here? Yeah, I can believe that. <laughs> and at one point,
1: D basically yelled at the audience and stripped off, of his, stripped off his makeup. And that got a reaction from them. Uh, it really, that documentary is so good. And it, w- it was filled with so much information that I had no idea about with the early days of that band that it made me see them in a completely different light, even though I was already a huge fan. Of
0: right, them. even though you've been following them for, you know, 25 years or something, yeah.
1: But the thing is, like, as of 1987, they dropped off the face of the map until the late 90s. Uh, and I believe it was a – there there was a performance where they got back together, I think, in 99. But it was really after 9-11, I think, where they did a tribute concert that started to bring the band back together. Because when they broke up, uh, they hate – everybody hated D. And Mark Mendoza, who was one of the closest friends of D in the band – he says, you know, in the, uh, behind the music, I wanted him dead. Like that's how much he hated right. what he perceived D had done to that band and their success. And so he, you know, he couldn't stand the sight of him. and they didn't talk for years and years and years. It's, it was an ugly breakup, but D pretty much admits in almost every interview that it was his fault. He right. was the one that, that, you know, it, the overexposure of their image coupled with the bad choices that they made especially in the wake of Stay Hungry, really killed that band.
0: But there's that dichotomy, because up until you know, this show, if you'd asked me to name a single member of Twisted Sister, D. Snider is the only person I could have named. I had no idea who J.J. French was. Never heard of the guy before.
1: You know, right, the guy I, who started the band owns right. the name. Um, but by yeah, the owns time the, the, the trademark, the, yeah. <laughs> owns the trademark on Twisted Sister, but wasn't getting the royalties from the songs because D Snider wrote them all
0: ah right right so
1: by the time the band breaks up it really is d snyder's band and the other guys and they were talking about how you know those guys finally make enough money to buy a house of their own and d's living in a mansion those guys finally make enough money to buy a car and he's got seven of them he's got seven ferraris yeah (laughs) exactly and so there there was that discrepancy but he went completely bankrupt d did was working um I forgot what the heck he was doing. He was like doing books for someone or something like that. Like he, they, they all were in real rough shape at one point And he, um, he had been completely bankrupt. He, he uh, had a, you say that,
0: but JJ French became uh, a manager and producer. He produced seven dusts first album. Yes, he apparently. Did.
1: Absolutely. And I remember that being one of the things that made me interested in even paying attention to those guys is that when I saw his name on it, I went, Oh, Okay.
0: Yeah, as such a weird, you know, kind of evolution for somebody like that. I mean, talking, uh, you mentioned, I'll just briefly say, and this is sort of linked, that it doesn't entirely surprise me that Lemmy would have been a fan, because based on this record, it, this record is very much more on the rock and roll end of, you know, rather than sort of thrashy metal. Um, it's a very, very rock and roll record, and... You mentioned all their sort of influences from the seventies. And one of the things I was gonna say was that this whole record to me sounds more like a sort of late seventies glam rock record than glam or hair metal. Do you
1: know what Which I mean? Which is exactly who they were.
0: Right. Well and, you know and, know and now I now I know that's because that's the era when they sort of came up through the clubs, yeah. But just listening to it, I was like, This is nineteen eighty four, but it sounds like a record from nineteen seventy eight.
1: Right, and these guys get almost in almost every respect. These guys get lumped in with what we call as a larger genre hair metal. But they were before that.
0: Musically they're really not.
1: Absolutely. And you can hear, you know, what Motorhead did was they took rock and roll and beat you over the head with it. Right. And you can see a very similar approach in a lot of Twisted Sisters music. There's a there's a kindred spirit in my mind, especially with some of the more rock and roll stuff that Motorhead did to the sound of Twisted Sister. I I think in some of these songs, you can hear that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my sort of, you know, initial notes on the album were that it was very much on the rock and roll end of the spectrum, not as bluesy uh, as Def Leppard, which is also, you know, the Def Leppard album we did was also kind of on the rock and roll end, but that was much more, had a much more bluesy flavor. This is less bluesy, more sort of towards the metal edge of things but yeah just a very very rock and roll record uh, although bits of this album parts of this album and you may laugh but parts of this album actually reminded me of
1: early halloween oh i don't doubt that at all i would throw iron maiden into that mix
0: well um, I, ah but i thought without cuz halloween had a really really obvious big maiden influence you know i don't sure. think anybody would deny that but i didn't feel any kind of nuobum or maiden influence in this album
1: I feel it in uh, Mark Mendoza's bass playing, for sure.
0: Oh, I suppose there's that, yeah, yeah. But
1: I think that for me, you know, if I had to, like, talk about their overall sound, I would say that their guitar lines are extremely simple. Oh, yeah, yeah. And very much just sort of on the rock and roll side of things. The three things that make this band heavy as hell, especially on the the songs that really punch, are A.J. Perro on drums... Mark Mendoza on bass and D Snyder's voice. Yes. Those three things elevate what could be very simple rock songs that in the hands of another band wouldn't feel heavy at all.
0: Right. It might fall a bit flat. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I could definitely when we did the Sister Sin episode, you mentioned that uh Liv Jagrell specifically calls out D Snyder as her biggest vocal influence. And wow. I could really, really see that. Listening to this, I was like, wow, yeah, okay, this actually, I could imagine her singing these songs.
1: Right, because you got that deceptive range, and you have that raspy energy, and just, you can feel
0: the anger. Deceptive range is a really good way of putting it, actually, yeah, I like that, because you hear his voice, and he sounds a bit like, oh, it's like Lemmy, but he can sing a bit. Yeah, uh, and then suddenly, after a couple of tracks, he starts soaring, and you're like, "Holy shit, he yeah. really can
1: sing!" But it always sounds like he's singing like at the top of his voice. And, the, and yes. you know, we'll talk about the production <laughs> yes. as we go, because sometimes they're sort of muting down the vocals so that he can sing at the top of his voice. It's weird how they how they sort of do some of that. But yeah, it it is that thing where you, at first glance, you don't think he has. That range. He just doesn't you,
0: sound like what well, a singer that has range. Yeah. yeah, right. And then
1: you listen to a song like "The Price" and you're like, oh, okay. He he does have range. This is, he legitimately can cover a lot of ground. And yeah. then, um, but the energy. So his energy, you know, Mendoza's bass playing, which to me is like I, I look at this album and I say, boy, if you're a musician, I bet these songs are a hell of a lot of fun to play. The the bass lines are all interesting and in many ways, I think, more complex than a lot of uh, rock bands out there at this particular time. Certainly more Uh, complex than the actual guitars. (laughs) Absolutely. They're, They're more complex than the guitars and often carry the rhythm in a way that uh, well, just completely just, overshadows the guitars.
0: They're just locked in, aren't they? Oh, I mean, you know, the, the rhythm this, section, the rhythm of, section this band, of this
1: band is amazing. It is. Uh, I'm glad that uh, I'm so and, glad and that you said that because they are the, the engine,
0: right? And you only get that. Pantera were the same. You only get that through hours and hours and hours of playing together, of getting to the point where you know one another's styles so well, and you've played so many hours together, you've practiced so much that you just lock in and you feel like. A single unit and like I said Pantera famously had that because they did spend not quite as long as Twisted Sister but you know many many <laughs> uh hours and hours playing in pissant little clubs and what have you and, and practicing and playing together and yeah you you can tell that this band had clearly had been playing together for years because they're just and and this goes for everything actually not just the rhythm section the whole band is clearly you know it wouldn't surprise me if this entire album was recorded in like one and a half takes you know, right. one t- one take for the whole band, and then like an extra, you know, do some guitar solos, and then they're done.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and just the way that the bass and the drums play off of each other and accent one another, and there's specific songs where I sort of pointed it out in my notes. But man, just uh, I it reminds AJ Paro, who uh, sadly passed away in 2015, um, reminds me a lot of Vinny Appice when we talked about the Dio album, you know, he doesn't play with the sticks backwards like Vinny does. So it's not as, so it's not the sticks that are lending that to his sound, but boy, does he hit hard and you really hear that. And then the way that Mark Mendoza plays his bass, which is primarily finger picking, uh, just the way he hits some of those notes, just lend a layer of heavy to them that just elevates so many of these songs. And then you throw in these vocals. So yeah, it's like, you take these simple guitar lines, and then everything around them is built up with such a thickness that it lends a heaviness to the band that it that the songs almost, uh, in some cases, don't even deserve. It's just interesting that way.
0: Yeah, well, and you know that brings us to we've got to talk about the guitar tone, man. It just absolutely kills me. It's it's all middle. It it's, <laughs> it sounds it sounds like a five watt practice amp.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's. It it sounds like they're playing in a club.
0: Yeah, yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, The production—I mean, it's kind of old-fashioned. Again, the production sounds like something from the late '70s, rather than you know the mid '80s. This is the mid '80s, and yet the production just doesn't sound like it at all. And yeah, that guitar tone slays me every time I hear it.
1: (laughs) I mean, you could you could essentially envision like someone coming to the sound check at a club and recording this album
0: oh totally yeah you know yeah, what i yeah.
1: mean like it doesn't feel like a studio quality album in a lot no. of ways now the on the flip side of that there is the 25th anniversary remaster which i'm sure a lot of the people listening to this episode now that was the version they listened to because it was streaming on amazon prime that's a lot more even in terms of its production have and they beefed
0: the, up the guitar sound
1: yeah, and and it sounds more in line with everything else, so there's a more even tone to the whole song, whereas in in this album, and I actually prefer the original because, for me, it's not the guitars of why I listen to Twisted Sister. Right, right. It's the percussion, it's the rhythm section, and it's a D, and those are most certainly front and centre on this album in the original version.
0: Well, and the guitars are front and centre. They just have a pretty horrible sound. <laughs> so, but the one thing I will say in their favour is it does sound raw, as you say it sounds like super g- raw sounds like this came straight out of the mixing desk of you know of a club gig or something it, it is really really raw and sort of naked and you know that much as i dislike the actual sound of the guitar it is kind of the, i think that helps give it that energy that the album has
1: it sounds like if you listen to this album and you walked into the club this is exactly what you'd hear from them which i think when Which was probably the idea. Yeah, which I think that a lot of albums don't capture that vibe. And a lot of albums, because of their overproduction, uh, are very different from what you actually hear from the band when you go to see them live. Like these guys, like you knew exactly what to expect because that's it. Well, and you hear a lot of producers say that, you know, their
0: aim is to try and, that a band that they love and impress them live, that they're trying to capture that energy that the band has live and put it on record um right. i remember the first actually not the first the second uh white zombie album which was uh produced by andy wallace i believe uh was exactly that you know he said like and because their first album sounds terrible it's not there's a couple of good songs in it but the production's awful and what have you and he said at the time you know i really wanted to do them justice because live they're phenomenal but that wasn't coming across on the record and so you know that was what he set out to do and you hear that from a lot of producers and a lot of bands about what they're trying to do and you know if that's your aim yeah it sounds like this album was completely successful (laughs) if that's what you were going
1: for and this is a band who just spent 10 years in the clubs honing their sound exactly yeah so and you could tell from the length of the songs to the energy of the songs to the production of the record like this is a club band, and this is the energy they bring. Yeah, and and that's uh, that's one of the things that endears this album to me. Even though, from a production standpoint, like it certainly has a lot of flaws.
0: Yeah, the one other thing that kind of separates them from those mid '80s, what we think of as mid '80s metal bands, as well. Uh, and this ties into bit to what you were saying earlier about the sort of the two sides of the album. Um, it's much more angry both in lyrics and just the actual sound as well. There's a lot more anger there than what we think, you know, most mid eighties metal we think of as being sort of party music and good time stuff.
1: Um, And sex, drugs, rock and roll. None of the the songs on this album are about any of that. Right. It's just sheer anger and frustration (laughs) throughout the whole This whole album is about that struggle of clawing your way to the top of that club scene and maintaining what you have without losing it like that. That's not what most bands were writing about. Most bands were writing about girls and partying and beer and, yeah, and none of know, what Twisted cars. Sister is writing about <laughs> on this album is about that at all. And that's one of the things that I think actually helps this album stand the test of time, because one of the things that is tough to take when it comes to eighties hair metal is the cheesiness of the lyrics right where you're just like oh geez like the rhythm's great i love the guitar riffs i love the solos but these lyrics are just garbage and i happen to think that d Snyder is a a very very good lyricist
0: right it was all such a sort of love letter to that 1980s excessive consumption as well yep yeah which you know is so desperately out of fashion now (laughs) right you know Uh, whereas this as you say this is much more universal these lyrics they're not complex by any means, but they are you know kind of simple, direct, and universal
1: yes, and they're they're and when you think of these guys in a club, like you can totally get why the anthems are the way they are, because oh, yeah. you get the yeah, crowd yeah. pumped up you've got songs about being an outcast and being ostracized and being proud of who you are and finding your your group that you fit in with and you know rebelling against authority, and then you've got this these songs about how hard it is to make it here and how by the time you get there, you almost lose your love for what it is that you're doing and all this kind of stuff. And so all of those things together to me, just make this album even more fascinating because there's, there's these storylines that run through these songs where, you know, early on in the days uh, that was a big theme with twisted sister is that we, we are different. And you're different and so you're like us and that was when we talk about smf the last song i mean that's that's the right that's the that's basically that. their fan yeah. club song you know yeah
0: so the album is uh nine songs but that's kind of cheating cuz actually it's 10 uh, it's just that two of them are listed as as one as a sort of you know segue on the right. album uh 37 minutes good length you know as yep. we've said before, doesn't sort of overstay its welcome, and like you said, I'm sure much of that comes from having honed and written so much of their stuff in the clubs, where you know ten minute songs ain't going to cut it,
1: right? And so uh, released in May on May 10th of 1984, uh, we mentioned D. Snyder, your lead vocalist, Eddie Ojeda is plays lead and rhythm guitars, JJ French rhythm and lead guitars, uh, Mark the Animal Mendoza is the bass player, and AJ Perro on drums. That's that's the unit, and they had. Uh, Mark joined the band in 1978 and A.J. Parrow in 1982. And that this is the, sort of the definitive lineup of Twisted Sister.
0: Right. I confess I didn't even realize there was a second guitarist. The first time I listened to this, I just assumed it was all J.J. French doing overdubs.
1: <laughs> right, because it's so simple
0: right well exactly yeah yeah it is so simplistic and that's not a pejorative but it is so simple and simplistic that uh, yeah i just assumed they only had one guitarist (laughs) well and it
1: reminds me a lot of acdc in the way that right right you don't have to be overly complex to kick ass and that's one of the things that i love about this band too is that uh you don't have to get fancy in order to sort of punch people in the gut
0: one thing i will say is that uh because you sort of I said, oh, I'd never listened to this album. And you said, oh, you know, you'll recognize the hits when you get to them. Uh, actually, I didn't. I didn't recognize a single song on this album
1: <laughs> when I listened well, to it. That's, I was even, like, more, that's even better, because I just assumed everyone alive at that point in time would know those two songs from Twisted no, Sister. I mean,
0: I may have heard them, but they certainly did not stick in my mind. You know, I... I Yeah, I didn't recognize any of them. However, I will say that just by the second listen, the first time I listened to this was actually on a treadmill at the gym. Um, But the second time, by the second time I listened to it, I was already singing along to a couple of the choruses. Oh, there's a couple of earworms on this album for sure. Yeah, so I think that's a testament to just how damn catchy a lot of it is.
1: It, it, and in many ways, I think catchy with lyrics that you're not ashamed to sing along with, as opposed to some of the other stuff that we talked about from the <laughs> 80s. Where, Yeah. <laughs> um, so this album, as I mentioned, sold almost 4 million copies. Uh, a couple other fun facts. Twisted Sister had a brief cameo in the 1985 movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, there's a part where Pee-wee is trying to escape the security on the, I think it's the WB lot. And Twisted Sister is filming a video for Burn in Hell. And he like rides through right through the middle of it. It's like a five second cameo. Uh, that song "Burn in Hell" was covered by the black metal band Dimu Borger on their Puritanical Euphoric Misanthropia album. They did a okay. cover of Twisted Sister. Wow. Uh, I don't know that band very well. I know of them. Uh, and as I mentioned, they broke up in October of eighty-seven, which is about three and a half years after this album, which was their most successful by far. So uh, the album
0: kicks off with, of course, track one. S- title track, stay hungry.
1: Which, as we talked about, I think uh, really epitomizes the attitude of the band. You know, they fought for 10 years to get to this point and they don't want to lose that edge. And that's what you see in the lyrics through this entire album. And it's kind of a burner. Like it, it's, it's one of the more up-tempo songs on the album.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good intro and I mean, yes, you can sort of, you can tell why this is the title track for sure.
1: Right, it's, you see, like uh,
2: it's like be a be the hunter and the
1: hunted. Keep your target in your sight. Don't get sidetracked or shunted. Let pretenders feel your bite. So there's that that mentality of taking down other bands that get in your way. You right. Know, well, stay on top. Fight for what you have.
0: And the struggle through the clothes with those lines. I'll fight for every inch I take. I'm desperate to the bone. Right. <laughs> That's like there's not much subtlety
1: there. <laughs> and if you start to slide, never show your weak. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, the, just that mentality of we can never back down, because if we do, someone else will be there to eat us. Right. You Which, know, if your fire's faded and you can't feel it no more, if you're tired and overrated, let me show you to the door. Expect no sympathy. There's none to be had. Open yeah. your eyes and see. There's no room for the wannabes, the has-beens, or the bad. Yeah. It's uh, And and you can understand that mentality,
0: you know, if they came up through a club scene, especially the New York club scene, which was notorious for, you know, uh, yeah, you know, audiences would not suffer anything less than, you know, gr- great bands. So it really was dog a dog-eat-dog scene. So uh, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. But, yeah, by the time a band releases their third album – You'd kind of expect them to, you know, to not have to worry about this sort of thing anymore.
1: But I feel like this song is a reminder. Like, D. Snyder is writing this as a reminder to them. Like, we can never stop having this mentality. Yeah. Like, it, so it's almost like, look, we fought all the way to get here. We're really tired. But remember, the second we start to slide, we're done. And he was right in that, you know, fashion. And so that's one of the reasons I find this album so fascinating is that he's he's kind of saying it's like the pep talk this album in many ways to me is almost like the pep talk to the band of even though we're right here we can't lose our edge and 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 it just epitomizes both the struggle and the constant reminder to never never slip yeah Um, and it's got a great bass line and it's up tempo and and right here out of the gate i think it shows you mark mendoza's what he's bringing to the table in terms of the bass playing
0: Oh, absolutely. And uh, the drum rhythm on this track actually really reminds me of early Motorhead, talking about Lemmy earlier. And one of my notes on this is that the, the drum rhythm really sounds like the kind of thing that I would have expected from early Motorhead.
1: And what which, I like about Which is no AJ, bad thing. No, it's a great thing. And, and what I love about AJ Pero is that he doesn't overly rely on the bass drum. He very much works the snare in a way that a lot of drummers don't. And when he uses the toms, he doesn't overuse them. It, it, like It's just, I love his style, and I, I love how he can be the, the driver of this more up-tempo song. And then on some of their slower songs, he just lends an element of heaviness to the way he hits those drums. And so, again, I'll keep talking about the rhythm section throughout this album, but it really, right out of the gate, it's like, man, these guys play so well together. Well, I think musically,
0: you could say that about the whole album and the whole band is that nothing, including Snyder's vocals, nothing is wasted. Like mm. there, There's nothing in this that feels unnecessary. Do you know what I mean? Nothing is indulgent. Uh, and again, that probably comes from having come up through the club scene. Even the guitar solos, there's a guitar solo in this track.
1: It's, right, they're never overdone.
0: Right, it's one of the most technically complex on the album because yep. they're actually generally very, very simple solos. Very um, simple. And they're all very short. They're not, uh, again, not overindulgent. Nothing is, yeah, nothing feels unnecessary, whether it's the drums, the bass, the guitar, all the vocals. Everything feels, okay, this much, and we don't need any more. So Even
1: the little whammy to uh, emphasize, you know, the main chord hit. Mm. He just hits the whammy a couple of times, like not too over the top, but just adds a little flair. Right. When he goes,
0: wow, 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 wow. Yeah. It's just, as you say, just a couple of times. It's not like, not like a crazy dive bomb or anything. Just... Right. It's
1: just enough to pull you in a little bit. Yeah.
0: Um. Uh, so, so yeah, that's a really good intro track. I thought a really, you know, sort of, like I said, like a manifesto for the rest of the album, which, as we've said many times, you know, we, one of the things we agree on is that opening tracks should set the case. For what the rest of the album is going to be like and I think that one does a really good job of it
1: and I think it was an eye-opener for people who bought the album because of the second song that we're going to talk about
0: right on to track two which is of course we're not going to take it
1: was Basically, an anthem for an entire generation. Uh Rock, this was I, a song I can't that was so popular. i never
0: heard it before.
1: <laughs> you know, and, and, and mainly, of course, because of the video that went along with it. Now, for those who have seen Animal House, you know the character played by Mark Metcalf was Douglas Niedermeyer. And he was this over the top screaming, just kind of douchebag character. D Snyder in the director of this video basically convinced him to reprise the role that he played in Animal House for this video which is essentially telling the story of you know a catholic school kid who is getting yelled at by his dad for the crap music that he listens to and he morphs into D Snyder and then it becomes a looney tunes cartoon basically where you know they're throwing the guy through the window and he's you know every time he tries to get the better of the band they get the better of him and that's that was all because they wanted to sort of cap. So he came back and basically reprised his role from Animal House for this video and for I Want to Rock.
0: Huh. I mean, yeah, I'm not surprised that this is... And uh sorry, forgive me, I've forgotten and I'm not on the page at the moment. Somebody posted um, uh, a video of them playing this uh, from a couple of years ago in France. Mm-hmm. Or a couple of years ago, maybe even just last year. Um and it was tied into the, the terror stuff. It was the, the protests, stuff. yeah. Right, yeah. Um, but, uh, it, you know, more, more relevant to what we're talking about, was just, obviously it was a big live outdoor concert, and the whole crowd, pretty much the whole crowd, were into it and singing along. And I can really see why this is a live favourite. It is very anthemic, very easy to sing along to. Um, well, yes, and imagine being
1: a 10-year-old. In oh, right, seeing right. this video on MTV, and I was a Catholic school kid, I liked music that my parents thought was crazy. Here's this kid
0: Taylor morphing for you.
1: into the lead singer of this band, and they're telling me that I don't have to listen to authority. I can be who I am, you know. And he in some of the lyrics here: "Oh, you're so condescending. Your gall is never ending. We don't want nothing, not a thing, from you. Yep. Your life is trite and jaded." boring and confiscated if that's your best your best won't do you know just this whole let's gather the army of these you know disaffected teenagers and we are the band for you
0: yeah and i could really see the uh appeal of that to yes i mean to young kids especially but really to anybody who felt like that and
1: let's face it you know a lot of people in the metal scene do feel like that in 1990 when uh noriega surrendered when he was, I think, at the Vatican embassy, there was the the U.S. military was playing rock songs to basically mentally break him into submission. And "We're Not Going to Take It" was one of the songs that was in the rotation for <laughs> that situation. Um, and actually, you can find the whole playlist from from that particular time if you if you search for uh, Noriega like 1990 or something. But Twisted Sister, I remember even back in the day, news reports talking about how they blasted "We're Not Going to Take It." in in order to get because noriega hated that type of music and so that was one of the tunes that they blasted in order to get him to surrender
0: Uh, don't they always rock the caspar you know
1: yep (laughs) all right uh
0: so yeah i mean like i say i'm amazed that i hadn't heard that track before but now that i have heard it i'm sure i will never forget it because it is just so simple and so catchy and the bass
1: line too is very uh, is a sort of a very simple rock bass line but it's Uh, Maybe simple's not the right word It's a a catchy rock bass line It's got quite a few
0: fills Quite a few walks up and down the fretboard Within that chorus Yes,
1: he makes it interesting every time
0: Uh, And speaking of interesting Okay, track three Burn in Hell
2: You're gonna burn in hell
1: the greatest metal songs of all time if i had to make a top 50 list this would absolutely be on it for me really wow Uh, i cannot tell you how much i love this song because i love everything about it the apocalyptic opening the fake out opening yeah welcome to the abandoned land come on in child take my hand here there's no work or play only one bill to pay there's just five words to say as you go down, 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 and then he chuckles, You're gonna burn in hell.
0: And, and that's then when the it song all kicks, kicks off, in, yeah. and you're
1: like, Holy
0: fucking shit, The song. That intro actually really reminded me of Alice Cooper. Uh, oh, who, sure. huge influence on them, absolutely. Right, I, I was gonna say, I don't think it's any stretch to say that, of course, Alice Cooper's gonna have been an influence on the band, but that intro in particular, musically, not just you know, forget all the, the way he delivers
1: just, the lyrics. Right,
0: everything about it was just like, wow, yeah, okay, this is him playing Alice Cooper.
1: <laughs> oh, such a great! I'm doing and, it very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, his his there's just five words to say. Like the way he says <laughs> it is very Alice Cooper like. Yes, it is. Yes, it is.
0: Mm-hmm. And then uh, we were talking about his vocal range earlier. The uh, the screaming burn in hell bit oh. is that's. I mean, that's kind of the most traditional metal style that his vocals get on the whole album i think but that was the point for me where i was like oh wow okay yeah he really can
1: sing and even just the way he bursts into that first verse you can't believe all the things i've done wrong in my life yeah, yeah. just comes flying out like he shot out of a cannon like the energy in this song and the ba- again i'll go to the bass line like just killer killer bass line But my favorite part is the way they sort of descend into the chorus. You know, just the the individual notes and then the hard stop, and then you're going to burn in hell. Right, yeah, yeah. So, so freaking good. And then, of course, the second time around where he's saying, you know, take a good look into your heart. Tell me what do you see. It's black and it's dark now. Is that how you want it to be? It's up to you. What you do will decide your own fate. Make your choice now. Tomorrow may be far too late, and then you'll burn in hell. And then the second layer of his vocals come in. Hear no evil, don't you see no evil? Like to me, even just talking about it gives me the shivers, man. Because that that just is so sick when it comes in for the first time. <laughs> it just, I love it. It like is that's good. a fist pump moment for me, right?
0: It's this. It's a shame in a way because this is a track that I do feel would really benefit from a better guitar sound a fuller thicker guitar sound to make right. it sound heavier give it a bit more oomph because you know what he's playing is fairly heavy but the sound is so sort of you know relatively thin that there's a couple of places where you know the guitars are clearly meant to sort of go down and make you go Whoa, and they just kind of don't because the sound the literal sound just isn't quite there and it's a real shame because i agree right. this is a really good track
1: because there's that double layer where, uh, what like, he'll say, uh, you can't believe all the things I've done wrong in my life, and then they hit a chord, and you could tell they're layering the guitars to try to give that an extra punch. Right. yeah. But and it's it, not as it, heavy as it could be. Yeah, it's just not quite
0: there. It, it is a shame. Because, um, yeah, but I agree, they, this is a good track.
1: They come out of the solo, and it's just the bass and the drums. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh. And then, <laughs> I thought you'd like that bit. <laughs> not only do I like it, but I don't often say that maracas are sick but when they come in the second time he repeats that verse with the maracas i'm like that's fucking awesome like like just just the way they build and then he comes in with the energy again like we talked about it before this is a band that knows how to play together and yeah. they know how to put a song together and to build that energy and, and I'll, I didn't mention this up front, but I have never seen Twisted Sister live because back in the day they were gone by 1987. So, but this would be a song. And you haven't seen them since? You uh, haven't seen them since. But this is a band that like, this is a song that I need one time in my life to see them play live just because it's so fierce.
0: Well, and this um, year is your last chance then.
1: Right. Because they're on their farewell tour.
0: Yeah. 40th and fuck it, which I think yep. is a great title for a Yeah, oh, It's awesome.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. It's freaking awesome. So yeah, you better, uh, you better go and get those tickets. Man. But, but D has always said very clearly that he will not be the Rolling Stones. He right. will not be kiss. He will not be one of those bands that he can't sing the songs anymore, but he's parading himself out there and trying to make a go of it. When, when he, he wants to keep that energy and keep that ferocity and then just be
0: done before he loses that. Well, and especially when you have a voice like his, which is so, it has such a sort of punch, it reminded me, there's an old, uh, I can't remember who, but, uh are you, are you familiar with Jackie Wilson, the old uh, rock and roll singer? Yes. Uh, there is a a quote from one of his sort of backing singers. This is back in the days when everybody obviously used to record all the vocals at once. So, you know, the the lead singer and the backing singers would all be in the booth at the same time doing the whole thing in one take. And this guy used to laugh that they'd come out of a recording session with Jackie Wilson and their ears would be ringing because his voice was just so loud. Even if he wasn't actually belting it out, just naturally his singing voice was so loud that... It was, you know, make everybody's ears ring. They used to laugh about going deaf recording songs with him, and I kind of got that impression from D. Snyder here, like, you know, that if you were just stood next to him while he, you know, sang, that you'd be sticking your fingers in your ears when he opens his mouth.
1: Powerful. It's barely controlled rage. Like it, it just that energy. Even when he's speaking in interviews, you can sort of feel that about him. And so I love that. Like when he lets it go, it is just a force to be reckoned with and not in the way, you know, when we talk about King Diamond and we talk about Jeff Tate from Queensryche and stuff like that, or Michael Sweet from Striper, the ability to hit those super high notes, like his is just raw energy. The raw energy that he puts into every syllable, you can just feel, and and it lends that heaviness to every song. Yeah, it is amazing.
0: Although actually this is a good time to, uh, we didn't mention it up front, uh, which is, uh, we probably should have. We had an email from a listener, Donald Claxon, um, who, uh, wrote into the show to tell us about his personal encounter with, um, with D. Oh, I'm so
1: glad you brought this up. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Not with Twisted Sister specifically, but with Dee Snyder. He says, I had the chance to work with Dee as a stage manager for his musical Rock and Roll Christmas Tale here in Chicago in 2014. Uh, It was about a band who started to deal with the devil and ends up finding the true meaning of Christmas. It incorporated not only Twisted Sister songs, but also tracks from the Twisted Sister Christmas album, which is something that you have not mentioned yet and I may quiz you about later. Um... He says what I remember most is how thoughtful, caring, funny, and gracious D was and is. Uh, D has been a bona fide rock star for about 40 years now, and you might expect there to be a little bit of baggage, but there was none to speak of. He is completely self-aware of who he is in pop culture, but in no way seems to yearn for or try to be the same person he was in the 70s and 80s. He had a small role in the show. Uh, Even though he was also the book writer as the narrator and sang two songs, but was always the first cast member to arrive warmed up as if he was performing in a Wagner opera. I will never forget the day he gave a masterclass on performing metal in which about 10 of us were treated to a semi-private 15 minute concert in the rehearsal room. (laughs) That is awesome. Uh Throughout the run, I think almost every member of the Twisty Sister family came to see the show to support Dee and meet the cast and crew. Uh, If you can't tell, I have very fond memories of those three months. Uh, And he sent us a a lovely picture of uh, himself, his wife, and Dee at the opening night party. Um, But yeah, that was, uh, thank you, Donald, for emailing us about that.
1: Um, I'm so glad that you read that email because when I read it, it made me so happy because, again, we often talk about when you meet people in real life and they're not Right, who you had right. hoped that never they meet would your be. heroes. Yeah, it takes a lot of shine off of something that you love, and the fact that he's a cool guy, I think, is that makes me happy. And clearly, he learned from how, right, right, the downfall of Twisted Sister. I, I obviously, that was a very humbling experience. And, and in the behind the music, when they talk about the fact that he basically went bankrupt, like the ego takes a pretty heavy shot, but it's awesome that he is gracious to not only fans, but people that he works with. I, I, it's such a great story.
0: Yeah. Well, and also, frankly, being enough of an adult to take a blow like that and look, and look at yourself and reassess and go, okay, okay, clearly I've screwed up here. How can I fix this? How can I turn this around? That, you know, that,
1: that takes a brave man. Right. and And for people who grew up listening to them, there's so much love still there for – Twisted Sister, and obviously D being sort of the face of them, that a lot of us still carry that torch for that band. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. 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 I totally understand. Um, anyway, so sorry, we're getting rather off track, but I did want to bring that up because I'm it was glad, very glad you did. Yeah. It was a very nice email to uh, receive. And yes, you know, sort of is the sort of thing that can shed a whole new light on people. Um, but back to the album and track four, technically track five as well, but you know, um, is Horataria i <laughs> you
1: I bet you didn't expect
0: this. Well, first of all, you've got to tell me, what does Horriteria even? Is that supposed to be a pun on something? I just, am I being dim? I just don't get it.
1: No, no, basically, I don't know that the title itself has any significance in terms of of the word Horriteria, other than the fact that it was Dee's version of a mini concept album in the middle of Stay hungry, and for those of you who are familiar with the movie Strange Land, which came out in nineteen eighty eight D Snyder basically made a movie based on these two songs. Uh, and at the time he had talked about how he wanted to be a horror icon. This was one of the things that was sort of swimming around in his head when he was doing this stuff and and this was sort of a story that he had in these two songs that he wanted to build on and in this idea of Captain Howdy. You know, this character that is like your Jason and your Freddy and those types of characters was something that he maybe didn't have big plans for, but definitely felt like could become its own sort of icon thing. So here in 1984, you have this sort of two song concept story. And then in 1998, that turned into a movie called Strangeland, which is not the best movie, but he plays this character basically in that movie. With a couple of tweaks to, he's not so much a uh, a borderline pedophile in the movie character. He's more of a sort of, uh, you know, body modification sort of uh, sort of a guy that is doing awful things to people. But it's it's got basically the main concepts from from this song in it, right. So, Captain Howdy is
0: because that was the another. I was thinking like, is that a reference to a real no, thing? No, it's a character it he created, just, right? Or is
1: it a character he made up? Yep, yeah, that is exactly um, what it is.
0: Yeah, I just as I say, I couldn't get over the title. I'm like, it just doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I,
1: I think in his mind, it was the beginning of this sort of either series. You know yeah, what I mean? Or it's it's sort of like he he was trying to almost pitched this as its own concept.
0: Oh sure, I mean I get all that. It's just yeah, literally the title. I'm like it means nothing to me. was weird anyway. Um but uh I like the this sort of psycho-like strings effect at the start of the song, uh which kind of sets up the horror notion. I don't know if that's real or real strings or a synth, but it, you know, it's a nice sound. Um and then yeah, this really quite sort of stro- slow uh you know, yeah, me, what's the word? Menacing. Menacing, that's the word of people
1: in And, and uh, sort of uh, dread-inducing.
0: Right, right, yeah, as it kind of builds slowly. It makes you hate the character. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um,
0: and yes, very sort of, as you say, like, you know, pedophile kidnapping and murdering children lyrics sort of thing.
1: Exactly. Um, and and, uh, and again, this is 80, he probably wrote this song in 82 or 83, this is 84, you're right smack dab in the middle of... The boom of eighties B horror icons, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. So, so you know, you had Texas Chainsaw in the seventies, and now you've got. I think uh, Friday the Thirteenth was 81, 80 or eighty-one, um, and then your Nightmare on Elm Street, which might have been eighty-four. But you're right there, you know, in terms of that, in, in terms of that boom, and, and the first half of the song. I, I mentioned Perro's drum playing earlier, but this is one where I feel like he really uses the toms, effectively, to uh, just accent the creeping, dreadful nature of what the lyrics are putting out there.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, musically, it's, you know, it's very well, again, not particularly complex, but just gets over that atmosphere. It's very atmospheric and does it, you know, very effectively.
1: Definitely Um, gives you the picture of this horrible character. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know this absolute scumbag, and then the second half or the second song, really, "Street Justice," is more up tempo, and it is the anger and the you know the the comeuppance of of this character and how the neighborhood banded together to go and and kill him after he gets off on a technicality for this. And I just like I like the flip of it and. Like like you said before, even though the lyrics are simple, it just paints a, a clear story. You it's know a very I mean?
0: vivid picture, yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It, it paints a very clear and simple picture of, here's this guy, a stranger from the neighborhood, gets arrested for these crimes that he committed, but gets off on a technicality. The parents of the kids who were the victims of this guy band together. And they go and hunt him down, and they form a lynch mob, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they basically go and kill him. And you know, he's saying, "Before you shake your head, think if it was your child that's dead." You know, again, simple lyrics, but this whole like, you know, concept of uh, before you get outraged at this mob mentality, think about if it was your kid or a kid that you knew, or injustice wasn't served. And so, again, very, very sort of eighties. I think, um, very sort of B horror movie. And it turned out to be a B-horror movie when it was made into (laughs) Strangeland. And and the thing about Strangeland that's a little bit different is that in Strangeland, he gets caught. He goes to uh, a facility for the criminally insane. He comes back out, and he's on medication now, and he's actually getting better. And then the neighborhood comes after him for uh, something they perceive that he's done. And he sort of uh, ends up losing his medication and goes back to being that crazy person, and then wreaks havoc all over again. And so, right. it's a different. They definitely tweak some things for the but that core concept of horrorteria is absolutely the basis for Strangeland. I do wish that the transition
0: between uh, between the two songs was was done. Well, was done at all, really. I mean, all you get is just basically two
1: different songs. Yeah,
0: yeah. With the only thing that overlaps is a single guitar note at the end of a guitar solo uh, in the first part. Um, There's no real attempt to stitch them together at all, even lyrically. I mean, you're right that they you can perceive them as following on, but there's no actual there's no reference to Captain Howdy in street justice you're right they don't it, mention it, them by name right it doesn't make clear that this is the same character that the people are going out and lynching um they could be two completely separate songs they could have put them at separate places on the album and they still would have both worked which is you know kind of good but yep. also you know it's 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 no childhood's end you know <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah this is not Merillion. <laughs> right um I like the weird sound effect as well when he sings Child Scream at the start of Street Justice. Yeah, that's uh, sort of uh, faded out. It's almost like backmasking or something. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if that is what it is, but it, it's a weird sound that sounds like it might be that. Yeah. Um, it's almost like something you'd hear in a dream. Right, right, which I'm sure was the idea. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I can't really agree with the the lyrical sentiment of of the second half. But, you know, that's okay. I'm not a Satanist either, but I still like Ghost. So Well, right, and it's funny to
1: me because, like, this is a song that came out probably nine or ten years before Slayer's Dead Skin Mask, which was one of their most popular songs off of Seasons in the Abyss. And so here's Twisted Sister not singing about an existing serial killer but creating their own character for this mini horror movie that they're doing on an album that features two of the biggest anthems of a generation in terms of, uh, you know, chantable and sort of uh, sing along songs. And then they have this concept thrown in the middle of it. I just thought that was super interesting. Well, and I, I do wonder
0: if that's the sort of thing that actually helps an album cement itself in people's minds. Like if you're a young kid and you hear those anthems on MTV or wherever, and you think, Oh, that's pretty cool. And then you get the album and yeah, those al- anthems are on it. And there are, there are other anthems, you know, on the, album as well but then in the middle yeah is this strange you know starts off quite kind of macabre musical weird bit about yeah a pedophile serial killer and a lynch mob and you're just like what this is wait a second what i'm sure that actually probably makes the album more interesting i will tell you that for 10 year old brian
1: that is 100 percent accurate Right. This Whereas is if an the album entire where you basically album, gave me a horror movie in the middle <laughs> of this right. rock and roll album. It absolutely.
0: Whereas if the entire album had been nothing but I want to rock and, uh, you know, we're not going to take it and what have you, if it had been nothing but those
1: anthems, you would have enjoyed it, but you probably wouldn't still be listening to it now. And And even now, revisiting it, I will tell you it's much more interesting conceptually and lyrically than a lot of the 80s metal of that day because of its subject matter.
0: Right, exactly. Exactly. Um so uh, I just mentioned it speaking of track 5 is I wanna rock. I wanna rock. rock!
1: Yep, which they filmed a second video for, which again starred uh, Mark Metcalf this time as a teacher in the high school who is berating um, – and I forget the guy's name from St. Elsewhere. But basically in Animal House, it was – he was berating a kid for his military uniform and lack of uh, you know, uh, organization. In here, he's got a kid who's listening – who's writing Twisted Sister logos on his book in class and he goes off on him and then the kid says, I want to rock. And the guy goes through the ceiling and it's another sort of Looney Tunes type video that fell right in line with, we're not going to take it. And so this was the second one that sort of cemented the image of twisted sister at that time on MTV for sure.
0: This is, I mean, this is a very, very simple song. Uh, Lyrically, I'm, I'm looking at the lyrics right now, and I would guess that this, the entire lyrics of this song are comprised of maybe 30 words. Yes. Because most of it is, I want to rock over and over and over again.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's definitely not as good of a song as we're not going to take it um, on any level, I don't think. Uh, it, it's very si- you know sing-along, right. it's very sort of chanty, and it's a fun song, but it might also be the weakest song on the album.
0: Oh, I don't know whether I'd agree with you on that. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, it's it's an, it's an anthem, you know, and anthems oh, for have sure. to, it can't be too complex. The rhythm section, I think this is one of the tracks that really kind of shows off the rhythm section. Because, again, it's not spectacular, but they work so well together on this track. They're absolutely solid as a rock, pardon the pun. Um, oh, the bass
1: punches like
2: well Dude. and the
0: drums as well yeah, it's oh, like, absolutely. again nothing wasted you know no no drum hit is unnecessary there's just enough there to make it a real rocking anthem and not a tom hit more <laughs>
1: yeah. and i like the solo in the song again simple but really fits well and yep. doesn't
0: overstay its welcome i think this is probably the most technical solo on the album actually I mean, again, it's it's not exactly Ingvai Malmsteen, but you know, I think right. in terms of technical, you know, accomplishment, this is probably the most complicated solo on the album. But again, yeah,
1: very, still quite short, very rock and roll. And again, D's energy that he brings to the song, yeah, just drives it home. But but even though, and and I'm not disparaging it at all when I say, like, for me, it might be the weakest song in the album because what I love about all of these songs is that the energy that they bring a lot of these songs are just fun songs and this is a fun song to sing along with even today um my i play this song in the car and my 10-year-old is as into it as i was when i was 10 years old and right. so it still has that appeal in, in that it's it immediately hooks you
2: yeah oh
0: uh, yeah it's yeah it's so simple and catchy that i mean again yeah this was another of the ones that The second time I listened to the album, I was already singing along because, again, there's only like 30 words in the whole song. How can you not? (laughs) You know, the
1: chorus after listening to it. It still epitomizes the way I feel about music today. There's a feeling that I get from nothing else, and there ain't nothing in the world that makes me go. You know, like, yep, yep. That's still how I feel about music. And so, as simple as those lyrics are, they're still good. Yeah, they're still effective. Right. They have captured how I, my love, of rock and heavy metal in a way that still speaks to me today yeah totally
0: Um, uh, but (laughs) but then we move on to track 6 The Price and it's The Bastard Ballad
1: is the bastard ballad i'm guessing maybe your least favorite song on the album
0: actually no Uh,
1: i I think i think this is quite a good
0: song i do Um, too uh but it's not my favorite you know i i don't mind a good ballad and this is you know a fairly good ballad um but yeah yeah it's it's firmly in the middle in terms of sort of favorite and least favorite on the album for me
1: to me this is what captures the knife's edge that this band is sitting on right now as this album comes out fought for everything. It has taken everything out of them, but it's a life that they're never going to leave until right. it sort of spits them out the back end.
0: Yeah. It's the price we got to pay and all the games we got to play makes me wonder if it's worth it to carry on.
1: And so, very hmm, prophetic
0: autobiographical
1: much. <laughs> yep, and, and again, uh, prophesizing the fact that three years from now they're done. Yeah. yeah. So even now listening to it in retrospect, And knowing what the future of the band was, this song to me is even more powerful. And this is another song that I feel like AJ Perro's drums are just completely driving home the emotional core of this song. Just the way he goes into the chorus with just not overly complex, but goes around the kit, uses the snare to just drive home this the sort of drag on the main character of the song you know what i mean yeah well drums are a really important
0: part of any power ballad you know in what we think of as like a traditional power ballad the drums are really important because by definition the guitars aren't going to be complex the guitars are just playing like you know ringing chords uh because that's you know that's one of the definitions of a power ballad um you've got Obviously, the sort of you know the vocalist doing his thing the bass isn 't going to be running around playing right. a million miles a minute underneath for the same reason that the guitars aren 't doing that, so all you 've got left is well, maybe some keyboards you know if you 're one of those bands, but basically you 've got the drums and the toms and that kind of yeah, which you know could be the intro to every chorus of every power ballad ever. You're relying on the drums carrying that sort of emotional, dramatic weight in order to get you into the chorus, because nothing else in the band can do it.
1: And to me, it just highlights how good A.J. perro is in that it just walks that line of being perfect for the song, not overly simple, but not overdone. Yep, And yep. He, he never overuses any one drum in the kit. You know what I mean? So he's just it's just great choices in how he accents all that. I also happen to think that the solo in this song is an absolute perfect fit. Again, not overly complicated, but captures the emotion of the song really well.
0: Yeah. Well, and again, you know, uh, power ballad solos do tend to be simpler than most because they're more emotional. They're more about the emotion rather than sort of technical virtuosity. And yeah, it is a good one in this. Uh, and then a complete change of pace into track 7 Don't Let Me Down
1: A song that, when I first re-listened to the album, didn't stand out to me, might be my second favorite song on the album now. Really? Yep. <laughs> okay. This is my least favorite.
0: This is the one that I would, you know, we we often do this, we, you know, if we were uh, in charge of the track order, this is probably the track I would drop. Um, there's nothing wrong with it at all, but I just, there's nothing at all about it that stands out to me. Um, and the chorus actually, I think is quite weak And that, which, you know, they've shown, they clearly know how to write some great, great choruses.
1: Uh, and this is not one of them for me. I feel part of that is that the production on this song is not great. And it feels to me like the chorus is too far back in the mix. So it doesn't stand out Maybe. in the way that it should. Um, but what I love about this song is I really think my interpretation of this song is, is it is d writing a letter to his bandmates uh, and it oh, goes back I to the it was whole to the audience i to see to me it's it's his old like he and i i think you could totally interpret that as a song for the audience because i think that why would his bandmates want to sing this song if they felt like it was to them but i think you can read into this song you know that here is a guy who we know from the history of the band that at this point has completely taken over the driving force of this band. He is the sole songwriter. He is the person with the vision of what the image of this band is going to be. And in his mind, he has taken them to this point that they're at right now and they don't appreciate it. Right. And to me, a lot of the song is, you know, uh, he's saying, uh, I give you my best, so why don't you understand? I'm passing the biggest test, so don't cry. Lend a hand. Like, to me, he's almost saying to the band, like, look, don't bitch about me being the face of the band. Don't bitch about me being the guy who takes all the glory. I have gotten us here, so instead of complaining about it, get on board and appreciate what I have done to get us here. Like, i, yeah. I that's kind of what I take out of the song, is that, you know, he's he's kind of which to me goes back to the whole theme of the whole album, which is that we have come this far. Let's, let's not, not fuck it, it up. <laughs> yeah, let's not fuck it up. Like, yeah, like you know, I get it. Maybe it's not perfect, but we're here. Stay hungry.
2: Stay now
0: focused. Now that you've said that, actually, and looking at these lyrics again, I can see that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it is up for grabs. Clearly, he's not going to be completely uh, obvious, in it. it could be taken either way. But yeah, yeah, you might be right, actually.
1: Oh, but Um, you're totally right, too, about the audience. Like, uh, you're all that I work for, but that's not enough. You know, just just the fickle nature of music fan, the fickle nature of of the audience. Like, And and we saw that, as I mentioned, in in the performance that they did on the tube. He's up there giving his all, you know, screaming it out, belting it out, and the crowd's not reacting. What do I have to do? Do I have to die to show you my stuff? You know, do... So I completely think that you're dead on, and and so maybe it, the song has a dual meaning. You right? Know? Maybe it's meant to be about both. Actually, yeah, yeah, it could be. And and I love that part where um, I don't know if you'd call it a break or not, but where it switches up, and this is where he's saying I give you my best, and that's where you have, you know, din, 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 and and that to me is where the bass and the chords just drive home. It makes that part of the song, it sort of elevates the whole song to a heavier status because the chorus isn't that heavy and the chorus isn't that powerful and the regular rhythm line is just sort of straight ahead but they switch it up halfway through the song and to me it gives it this emotional punch that they then do again during the solo that i think just adds a different element and makes this song one step better than it is just from the regular rhythm you know
0: yeah um actually that Brings to mind something else in that goldmine piece. Uh, to his credit, one of the things JJ French said uh, was he was really gracious, actually, about D as a frontman. You know, he was also very frank about the fact that, you know, most of the people in the band don't get along anymore and haven't for years. (laughs) Sure. Um, Although equally pragmatic about doesn't matter, you know, we're entertainers. Um, But he was very complimentary. Um, You know, you could argue, well, maybe he was just saying it for the sake of the interview, but given how frank he was about many other things, he doesn't strike me as a man who would say something like this just because, you know, it was good. PR or whatever. And he basically said, look, D. Snyder is the best frontman on the planet. Uh, and if I can't, why would I play with anybody else when I've had the best? And if I can't play with him as my frontman, then what's the point in playing? And that was his justification for agreeing to wind up the band and do this farewell tour.
1: And I will also tell you that when you watch that documentary, he talks about the time right before D. came to the band where he had taken over lead singer duties because they couldn't find anybody that he was happy with. And he was basically saying, I was exposed and we had to change the type of music that we were playing because I couldn't sing well. And so him bringing D in was a complete acknowledgement of, if we're going to continue to make this work, we need to get a lead singer because I'm not cutting it. Right, so he right. wa- he, he,
0: You're absolutely right. I've got to that- put my ego aside and admit that somebody else can do this way better than me.
1: And it seems like he always did that. Like, whatever is best for the band, I will do. Granted, because my ultimate goal is I want to be successful. Right. But whatever that takes, I'll do that. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I thought, you know, I mean, there are many.
0: (laughs) He's clearly a complex man, and I wouldn't say I agree with his views on everything. But it is nice to see somebody who can be so pragmatic about that sort of thing that they can say, actually, yeah, you know what? I'm not the best guy for this. Let's get somebody else in. Yep. Um, you know, who can do a much better job than me and then publicly acknowledge that even 40 years down the line and say, "Yep, this guy's great." Sure. Um, so track 8, The Beast.
1: for my favorite song on the album
0: ah well this is my favorite song on the album which will probably surprise nobody (laughs) to be honest um it reminds me a little of a couple of the tracks off of the
1: dio album Uh, i can totally see that because the way that the bass and the drums interact on this song is my favorite thing about this entire album right It's, uh, uh, I mean, it's a
0: slightly slower song than the others. It's got that kind of doomy again, menacing kind of atmosphere and feeling. Um, yeah, I don't, I just, I love it. This is, you know, if this turned up on a karaoke machine, I would probably have a go.
1: (laughs) It's the best. It is the perfect epitome of twisted sisters attitude as a band. And it conjures up immediately the image of them being a shark in the water and seeing another band in the club scene. This right. song is all about we will set our sights on you, and we will destroy you, and there is nothing that you can do. And I love that because this is this is the song of who Twisted Sister was on their fight to the top. They were the beast. You show me a band that's better than us, and we will go out and destroy them. And this whole song is basically them putting every other band on notice that once we set our sights on you, just get out of the way. There's nothing you can do. And in the lyrics, like... If you don't have what it takes, don't try to play. You'll lose your stakes. You know, D saying, this killer knows his business. He's the predator. You are his only target. You're his only goal. There's nothing you can do or say. You know, uh, remember this at least. It's the nature of the beast. Like, just basically saying, look, it's just the way that it is. We're going to destroy you. And there's nothing you can do about that. And I just love the whole tempo of this song. Because it really is, reminds me of them, like, in the club scene, circling whatever band it was that they were told was the number one band at the time. And just putting that band on notice, like, it's already over. We're coming for you.
0: <laughs> see, I didn't, when I was listening to this, obviously, I didn't know that they had that attitude towards other bands uh, in the club scene when they were playing. So I didn't get that. I mean, now that you've said it, again, looking at the lyrics, I can totally see it. But I didn't get that at all. Um I assumed that it was meant to be some kind of uh, psychosexual thing, uh, you know, with a dash of Dracula <laughs> thrown in. <Yep. laughs> um, but it's, again, it's one of those sets of lyrics that is non specific enough that you can take it in many different ways. Um, but I just musically, and, you know, Dee's vocal performance, but musically, I love this track. Yeah, this is definitely my favorite
1: on this album. And, and like every I say, other I'm sure note, that's nobody's surprise. <laughs> every other note that Mark Mendoza hits the pull of the bass string. He lets it linger. Right. And it it just in time with the striking of the drum. And it, to me like that is just one of the coolest, like lockstep, completely in tune rhythm section things that again, makes this song, which is a very simple song, a thousand times heavier than it has any right to be. Right. Like just this pounding, like force of nature that you cannot stop. I just like, to me, the lyrics fit the music perfectly. Yeah. And this is just a song about like, we are destroyers. And I, 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 to me, it just epitomizes everything that they were about. Yeah, it is. It's a very good match
0: of lyrics with music for sure. Um, and it leads into the, the closer, the final track, track nine, SMF.
1: Sick Motherfucker. Actually, Sick Motherfucking Friends of Twisted Sister was the name of the fan club, but that's where the SMF comes from.
0: Thank goodness, because I was that was going to be my first question. Because I could think of plenty of things that it could mean, <laughs> but
1: right. I was like, you know... They didn't want to have a fan club that had a normal name, so they named their fan club the Sick Motherfucking Friends of Twisted Sister. <laughs> and so, if you were an SMF, you're a sick motherfucker. Right, right. And right, so, okay. what better way to give... The teenagers that were listening to this rebellious music, you know, another, another thing to love you for than this sort of secret club that you're in where your parents don't understand what the initials are for.
2: Right. You know
1: what I mean? And so that to me, you might even have a patch on your jacket that says I'm an SMF and and your parents have no idea what that means because you're, but it's this whole thing to me opens like an ACDC song, right? Uh, Which, until it kicks in, then when it kicks in with the drums, it has this sort of cha-cha sort of rhythm to it. Um, Not that different from Nature of the Beast, a little bit more up-tempo than that, but this whole sort of cha-cha, sort of, uh, you know, very drum-driven beat. And it's all about, you're an outcast, you're the black sheep of the family, but look and see, you're a lot like me, you're an SMF. So again, it just gathers everybody in. You're part of us. Come on over here and be part of our crew. Uh, my favorite part, if they think that we're sick, then sick is what you'll be. Scream it loud. Know what you are. Be proud. You're an SMF. So again, they're closing the album by just saying, you're one of us. You are part of this group. Yeah, This is it- who we are. And be proud of that. And that that actually, my favorite song ever from Twisted Sister is called I Am, I'm Me. And it's very much in the same vein of this as I am who I am, uh, I don't have to be like you, I don't have to live like you. And it's my favorite Twisted Sister song, but this is very much in the vein of that as, you know, I was a nerdy, chubby, Catholic school kid who liked to play Dungeons and Dragons and listen to heavy metal music. You couldn't get more ostracized Than I was when I was in elementary school and finding metal as I moved into middle school That was my tribe. That was my group that I became a part of before I was part of any other group And so this album and this group spoke to me at a time in my life where I was getting bullied I was an outcast I was and these guys were me And so that's why this album holds a special place in my heart. And this SMF song was like, it spoke to me.
0: Yeah, I I can absolutely see that. And it's again, another, even though I, I would guess it's probably not classed as well. It wasn't a single off the album, but I can imagine if this was played live, yeah, I can, I can picture the fists pumping the air, oh, sure. you know, in my mind, I really can. And everybody's shouting along. I won't even say singing along with the chorus because it is just shouted. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great rallying cry. It's a, it's a good closer, really good closer to the album. Good note to finish on. Um, and yeah, and lyrically, yeah, it is very sort of inclusive. And as you say, it's kind of,
1: yeah, you're weird. So are we, let's be weird together. We're That's great. exactly right. Yeah. And then, yep. Just absolutely nailed it. And what a great way to close the album and also make you want to immediately listen it to again. it over again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, as I say, I, I think this is a really good song and a great closer for the album. So, And 37 minutes long, man, I would just flip that tape right back over <laughs> and start it all over again. Yeah, that'll fit nicely on uh, one side of a C90. So, you know, room for a bonus track.
1: Oh, we didn't mention that but but just in terms of how they split the album. Uh I imagine it end side 1 ends after Horataria, yeah. You're absolutely right. And side right. 2 begins with I Want to Rock.
0: Right. That which makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's yep. exactly, you know, how could it be
1: any other way? Right. You have <laughs> you have a good anthem on each side, one of their biggest hits on each side um to open each side, yeah. Yep. And
0: then side 1 ends with the creepy uh yeah, the creepy medley and then, you know, the side 2 ends with another anthem and the big sort of Rousing sing along. Right. Shout-along.
1: Side side two ends with, Hey, stick with us.
0: Let's yep. play this album all over again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Flip it over and you'll see that you're just yep. like us. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so what is the
1: remastered version of this like? How does it sound? So the remastered version is just a much more, I think, even production. And and there is a whole second CD to it that has early demos. There's uh demos of Burn in Hell. Uh, there's a very early song from Twisted Sister called Pay the Price, which is, I think, one of the first two songs that Dee Snyder ever wrote for the band. Um, you also have a radio spot that they did for, I can't remember the station, but like a, a Twisted Sister radio spot. Uh, there's one new track, and then there's like a hidden track on it. I, don't, I haven't listened to the deluxe version that much, but just in terms of the nine songs that we talked about, I think you will be much more satisfied with that production. It's never going to bring the guitars out in the way I think that would that you'd like to see but it's right, it's right. definitely just because of the recording technology at exactly. the time yeah yeah it's definitely a step up from the original version although I l- I prefer the original version and over this month I have listened 95% to the original version because I like the rawness of it and I right, don't think it loses yeah. the energy on the deluxe version it's just a little bit too clean for me whereas uh-huh. I like I like the the raw nature of it. Yeah, well, and that that
0: rawness, as I said at the start, is, yeah, you know, that's, uh, I think, actually, much as I don't like the actual guitar sound, but I think that rawness contributes to the energy, the
1: overall energy of the album. And I really admire the sort of workmanlike nature of both J.J. French and Eddie Ojeda. You know, they're just blue-collar guitar players that... Are never overly fancy, but they do exactly what the song needs. And I, I really, I just admire the way these guys work together as a unit. The Billy um, Gibbons school of guitar playing. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, just like. Well, all right, just young, actually. You know, the guy who started this band, how many guitar players that started a band would allow themselves to not be the centerpiece? of that band. How many eighties bands well, And would was write the guitar, guitar lines player that simple. Yeah, right. that's
0: true. Yeah, you know, it wouldn't write guitar lines really complex to show off how talented they are.
1: Exactly. Because everybody in the 80s had a guitar god, one of them. You know, you had your rhythm guitar player, but your yeah. lead guitar player was usually this virtuoso, amazing, you know, guitar player. Not these guys. You couldn't even tell which one's doing the solo. Because right. they just they just make it work. And and it's again very sort of bar band mentality where whatever the song demands is what they're going to do. Yep.
0: All right. Uh, I'm sure listeners can hear by now that you are starting to uh, lose your voice. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> and I appreciate those people you don't sticking know, with Brian's me. Brian's been a bit ill, so uh, I have. have to forgive
1: him. I'm, I'm fighting bronchitis, but yep. uh, but I absolutely wanted to record this episode because this this is one of my favorite albums and I hadn't gone back and really revisited it, like this, in a long time. Right. And it's been great.
0: Well, and I'm glad that I finally heard it. I mean, I haven't sort of really said overall, but I, I enjoyed this album. I liked this album. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, it's going to sort of make my top 10 or anything, but much like the Dio album that we covered, actually, I will I will continue to listen to this. You know, this is not going out of the rotation, uh, as it were, because, uh, yeah, I I did enjoy it, and I enjoyed that energy and rawness. And, yeah, the fact that, I always, like I say, I didn't know much about Twisted Sister other than Dee Snider hair, makeup. And I just, wrongly, obviously, but I assumed that they were just another glam hair metal band. Um, And, you know, clearly, musically, they're so far from that. And I wish I'd known. Because actually, maybe I would have been a fan in the 80s if I'd I'd known that. But the image and the name, to be perfectly honest, just kind of put me off because... I associated that with lots of bands that I I knew I didn't like.
1: Yeah, and the whole Twisted Sister thing is basically a answer to the New York dolls. You know, because again they use right. that the you know, the outfits and the makeup and everything else to to shock people. And so um if you liked this album at all, I would highly recommend to go and check out Under the Blade and You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, which were their two previous albums. And I also think that come out and play has some good songs on it, but you'll see how they're going much more towards the uh, poppy right. sort of radio rock sound on some of those. And then Love is for Suckers, I would only recommend to Die Hard Twisted Sister fans <laughs> or, or completion, Just for Dee Snider's voice, presumably. Exactly, because it's not good. Yeah. Um,
0: All right. So uh, let me just say to everybody out there, thanks for listening. Um, Remember, if you enjoy the show, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes, and you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. And homework, my choice. And I've been putting it off for long enough you know, for one reason or another, because of trying to think of variety, and then obviously we had the uh, very sad, untimely death of Lemmy uh, at the end of last year, uh, I've just kind of been bumping it back. But it's time. We are going to do Typo Negative's album, October Rust. Okay, which I have never heard. Wow. See, that's the kind of like, how how can you? But you know, fair enough. Um, have you heard Bloody Kisses? I believe I have heard it. So that's off right. that album. Uh, no, 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 bloody no! Bloody Kisses is, is an album. That's the one with um, Black Number One on it, which is the the song that every of that Negative. Then that's that probably the song that I now heard. Yeah, um, but you haven't heard the whole album. That's great because that is their best selling. or Was the album that sort of launched them October Rust actually was their best selling album afterwards? But uh, not by you know a huge amount. It's um, Bloody Kisses is their second best selling album easily, uh, and is the one that really sort of launched them. Uh, onto the stage, so I'm always amazed that people that people who haven't heard that album because it seemed to be everywhere.
1: Um, I know so next to nothing about that band. Whatever the song is that was on MTV, yeah, that'll be black the number one. Then yeah. there you go. That is that is literally the extent <laughs> oh, of my
0: knowledge. Actually, and experience. no, it could have, it could be Christian Woman. If it's the one with the video with the monks all walking around a circle uh, and a woman sort of like writhing around on a bed uh, with a nun's wimple on that's uh christian woman that got a lot of play on mtv no i think it was the other one. Oh, okay
2: <laughs> Christian, but Woman's i'm excited to well. dig into it because <laughs> i
1: know they're a band that a lot of people really love and i have no frame of reference for them at all excellent well i mean both of the songs that i just mentioned are from a previous
0: album this album that we're going to listen to is as i say it is their, their best-selling album and it's kind of their their most lush album they actually returned afterwards to a more sort of stripped back sound um but yeah, it's, uh, it's again, talking about interesting is an interesting album because it's the one where suddenly they had a massive budget and access to a full, you know, 64 track recording studio and they used all 64 tracks. Uh, and so this is what happens when you get a sort of gothic hardcore band from Brooklyn and give them a shitload of money in a 64 track studio. <laughs> well, now I'm even more interested to check yeah. it out. It's, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite albums. I mean, they're one of my top three bands along with Paradise Lost and my dying bride so uh yeah i'll be really fascinated to hear what you think of that so yeah that's october rust everyone that is your homework and uh we'll see you next time take care